I kid you not. Like essentially, like he would he would email us a list, and it would literally be like every East West sample CD, Ubershaw sample CD, whatever. <laughs> like over this trench coat, he's like, you need kicks, <laughs> dude. I I kid you not. And and like the whole entire deal would basically be like like my buddy would go and drop off a hard drive with them. We'd basically like tell them everything that we would want. And, you know, like essentially you'd be getting all these sample CDs for obviously a fraction of what they cost, you know, like back then they'd probably cost like anywhere from like 50 to 150 bucks a pop. We'd be getting them for like, you know, like $5 a piece. So, you know, you, you basically pay this guy 500 bucks, you know, you get like a hundred sample CDs worth of stuff filled up on your drive. Like there was like a legit like black market Samples dealer. Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, editor-in-chief of the Unst.com, Bill's manager, and someone in desperate need of a vacation. Bill's guest today is an absolute legend. Ed Ma is one-third of the Glitch Mob, one-half of Crying Over Porcelain, and 100% edit. In 2004, he released the seminal album Crying Over Prose for No Reason, and his third solo album, Come to Grips, was released earlier this year. Bill has had Beretta and now edit on the show, so we just need Uwa, and he's caught them all. Bill's a regular Ash Ketchup. Thanks to everyone who's been rating the show and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts and other assorted podcatchers. It really helps people find the show. Please join the Patreon to get early access to episodes, bonus content, and full video of every podcast. We really appreciate everyone who supports the show that way. Here's Bill's upcoming show schedule. The Uns Festival, June 4th. Infrasound, June 12th. Kill Bill at the Mish in Colorado on June 26th. And we're at a low ticket warning for all three of those. Deeper in the calendar, there's Freaky Deaky, where he goes back-to-back with Freddie Todd on Halloween weekend. And then the thrice-postponed Wobble Rocks finally happens in November when Bill joins Ganja White Night and a billion others at Red Rocks. There will be a few show announcements in the intermediate time frame, but don't you worry. I'll make sure you know about those. Finally, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore Abletoneer. Bill's been hard at work on his new album, but he popped his head up to do three HCA feed tutorials, so go check those out. All right, that's all for me. Enjoy Bill's chat with Edit. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Cool. See, we going. Here we go. Yeah, man. Uh, sick. Um, well, yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to do this, dude. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor. Yeah. Um, how's things? Where is this your house? The big warehouse vibe? Yeah. This is uh, this is my loft in downtown LA. I live in the Arts District. Sick. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just a cool, mellow neighborhood in the far eastern corner of downtown Los Angeles, kind of like right before it turns into East L.A. 
And um, yeah, I live on the, the south side of the Arts District, so it's just like a lot more mellow. Um, bunch, bunch of just like musicians and artists and stuff living here. No such thing. Lives like one floor up as well, too. Two floors up, I think. And um, yeah. Yeah, it's just like a nice mellow vibe and big open space. And yeah, I basically just live in like one gigantic square box, essentially. But I really like it. <clears throat> yeah, my buddy Dylan uh, Ill Gates was yeah. living in LA mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah, and yeah, he he was living like basically five blocks south, right? Like cl- closer to Soho House. But he recently moved. But he had like a gigantic, like he had like a legit, like arts district warehouse. Yeah, basically. it was huge. It was yeah. sick. I mean, I, I used to go there and spend spend like a week here and there, there like, yeah. be- between shows and. It was kind of cool. Like you could just be like up in one corner of the warehouse, like tucked mm-hmm. away in some like weird attic room and just sort of be in there and <laughs> have your own space and shit. It's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. He was running some other like thing though called producer dojo or whatever, where yeah. like people would sort of travel there to like stay totally. for a week mm-hmm. or two and just like train at the dojo, so to speak. Yeah, totally, man. Um, have you been in LA like your whole life or did you move to LA? Uh, I moved to LA to go to, to go to college. I went to school at USC. Oh, cool. Um, but I've been, you know, I've been living in LA for like over 20 years now at this point. So, uh, I've been living in Los Angeles longer than I haven't. So I guess you could call me like a true Angelino at this point. (laughs) Is that what people in LA are called? Angelinos? (laughs) Yeah. That sounds Um, Italian. Like it's my boy Angelino. <laughs> cool man. Um, mm-hmm. where where did you grow up before? Oh, where where did where were you before LA? Uh, I basically grew up in the Boston area. Oh, cool. So mm-hmm. like East Coast. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Boston is is a vibe for sure. I haven't spent like too much time there, but I like I live in San Francisco, so almost everybody mm-hmm. I know is from Boston because they like all went to MIT basically. Okay. Or, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how's the, uh, quarantine been for you? Have you just been like producing music or? Yeah. Quarantine's actually been really good for me personally. Um, you know, under normal circumstances with, with glitch mob, you know, we basically just be kind of touring a ton, you know, like on an average year, it could, I mean, it could range from like, you know, 50, 60 ish shows on a minimum to, probably upwards of 150 shows you know what I mean so this was kind of like when I was actually um I was actually on tour by myself in Asia when COVID just started happening so I kind of got a full taste of what kind of COVID was gonna be like before it even came over stateside like I think uh I think I was out in Bangkok I think the very first day that somebody died of COVID in Hong Kong. And I was actually using that trip to go visit my parents in Hong Kong. And I had to cancel the entire Hong Kong portion of it because they were shutting down borders. Just very, it was all happening very quickly. You know, like the next day when I got back to the airport, when you got up to the ticketing terminal, like they were asking you if you'd ever been to China and like all these things. And, you know, people were basically getting rejected on the spot if they had and stuff. So I was just beginning to experience all of it. And then basically by the time I got to Tokyo, it was like, 
yeah, you know, you'd hop on the subway and pretty much 90% of the people were wearing masks there. I mean, I was, I was also in Japan over Christmas before COVID actually was a thing. And, you know, you'd hop on the train and, you know, due, due to, due to SARS and MERS and like all these other airborne um, illnesses that they've had in the past, you know, people are already wore masks quite a bit, you know, probably like maybe 30% of the people on the train would be wearing a mask. But, you know, when I went back <clears throat> basically at the end of January, top of February to, to play a show in Tokyo, it was like, okay, legit, like 80 to 90% of the people on this train are like wearing a mask. Like this is like for real, it's beginning to happen, you know? And then when I came back stateside one month later, it was like, lockdown, you know? So when lockdown happened, um, for me personally, I was like very close to finishing the album that just came out on Friday called Come to Grips. I was like pretty much at the 80-ish percent point. And I kind of used lockdown as like a way to be like, okay, quarantine is coming, you know, having just been in Asia, I think we're going to be in this for like a really, really long time. So I have two options. I can just kind of like, you know, kind of do the, the, the typical binge watch Netflix, you know, just kind of play, you know, like make puzzles and, you know, like kind of like all the typical kind of quarantine stuff that was happening at the top of the pandemic, learn how to bake bread, you know, like all those kinds of things. Or I was like, I can, I can cancel my Netflix, like HBO, like all that stuff and just dive hardcore into the studio with no distractions. Like I want to be able to say I came out of this quarantine and, and I made the most of it and I was productive and I didn't waste any of my time because when am I ever going to get an extended force period of time to be at home? Um, so that's what I chose to do. I basically decided to just kind of buckle down, grind hard, dive deep into the music. I finished Come to Grips. Um, and then <clears throat> I basically began um, sending it out to labels once it was done. And this was kind of um, in the springtime. And basically, <laughs> I mean, like, like I don't know if uh, the music wasn't the right fit, if I wasn't the right fit, or if labels were generally, like, really scared of the COVID situation, but essentially I got turned down by every single label. Either they were like, listen, we don't know if we're even going to be in business next year, or we have to push back our entire release schedule in nine months. Like, damn, this record is really sick, but man, we're kind of... How does that even make sense though for a label at this stage of his, like, if, you know, everything's on the internet. It's like, what overheads does a label even really have at this point? Well... From from what I understood, I think there was just the initial fear when, you know, kind of like when everything started getting locked down in March and April, you know, and, and everything had to transition to people working at home. You know, like a lot of the labels that I were talking to, I think there was just like a general sense of like festivals are getting canceled. All these releases that we had planned, we're going to push everything six to nine months. Oh, damn. Like. We also have to pay our staff if we want to not lay them off. You know, there was just an overall big sense of uncertainty and fear. Mm. And as a result, yeah, no one, no one except for Planet Mew wanted to sign the label. <laughs> I mean, I mean, sign the record. The record yeah. But but Mike Paradinas 
he was he was just very frank with me and he was like listen ed he was like this is this is an awesome record man but he was like i just want to be frank with you like i i think you'd probably be better off just like putting this out on your own you know he's like i'm i'm humbled and honored that you want to do this on planet mu like just like good old times but you know um yeah i just want to be honest with you you know and he was he was really cool you know and and uh it was like a really good zoom call we had and it was really good to catch up with him but um yeah that was like a really really humbling moment you know to essentially just uh to just be turned down by all these labels that um i love and cherish so much in my heart and um and then you know then the george floyd stuff happened and that really just kind of sapped my creativity i really couldn't think about music at all for a period of time and then finally you know when the fall came around you know really was like okay it's time to get back into the zone wrap this up you know figure out how i'm gonna release it on my own and stuff and yeah it's pretty much what happened nice um yeah i kind of had a similar experience <laughs> um the start of quarantine i was like all right let's work on music and then like the middle of quarantine i went like massively into a hole of depression and got addicted to drugs and then did like rehab and like all, all right sorts on, of brother. I mean, I mean, yeah, you know, I think, I think we all have similar quarantine stories or, or just, you know, just, you know, on a daily basis, just being like, well, there's really no reason why I can't drink today. Right. Exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, I got a big like, day of doing fuck all tomorrow. But. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, it's probably okay to be drunk at two o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, what do I really have to do? <laughs> you know, yeah, like uh, I'm only cheating myself. Who gives a shit? <clears throat> um, yeah. So, what what was it about like shopping out to labels that you were trying to achieve? Like, why, um, like, why were you uh, trying to give the album to labels versus just uh, releasing it yourself anyway? I I think there were a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, I think. Um, I think like like in my heart and in my mind, these labels that I was like sending the music out to, I think I held them very dearly in my heart as kind of, um, I don't know, like as labels that like meant something to me in the grand scheme of, um, of, of electronic music, you know? Kind of like sentimental like, almost. Yeah, like these labels had meaning. They weren't purely just business vehicles to market the record you know what i mean i think from a secondary standpoint i think i think there was a little bit of that going on essentially giving the record an opportunity to um be pushed by a team that wasn't the glitch mob team you know just to get like a different perspective on it you know potentially a different audience and like different opportunities with with the music you know um so there was a little bit of that, but I think it was more just like, I think uh, deep down in my heart, I think these labels meant something a lot more to me than what they actually currently are at this point in time. And after being rejected by a bunch of these labels, zooming out and really kind of getting a broader perspective and kind of like looking at like where they currently are, kind of like really seeing like, well, maybe in the grand scheme of things, like a lot of these labels don't mean as much or don't have the iconic significance anymore that they used to 20 years ago um when they were doing like limited vinyl runs or you know they were 
doing really special things, you know, like maybe these artists are just, you know, they're, they're just, I mean, maybe these uh, labels they're they really are just like banks at the end of the day, you know? Mm. Um, and may, maybe I'm overthinking it, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that was it. I think it was like, part of it was more just kind of like wanting to, um, tick something off of the bucket list and be, be a part of like, you know, the mythology and history of these labels that I hold so dear to my heart. And then I think part of it was more from a business standpoint of, you know, really trying to introduce the music to, to, um, maybe like a wider audience or have like a different perspective on how to push the music, you know? Right. Yeah, I definitely agree. Labels have changed a lot. I mean, since the last album you released as edit, which was, uh, what, uh, certified air aid material in yeah. like 2007 mm-hmm. or 2008 or something. Something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So it's like 14 years or something. Yeah. Think, yeah. It was a very different time in the music industry. Totally like different at that time. point I was, uh, like barely producing music. I remember when that album came out and I think I even got it off. A, uh, I think a friend got it off a torrent site and then sent it to me <laughs> and was like, dude, listen yes. to this shit. Um, and I think at that time, like the reason my friend found that album is because it came out on planet moon. And that, that was like a, like a label he followed. And, you know, he was just like everything that's coming well, out well, of that well, label. I'll my, grab it my all. first, my first record crying over pros that came out on planet Mew. The second oh. record air raid material that came out on alpha pub. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so maybe it was one or the other. Maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, either way, um, that was why he found it. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think these days with the internet just as connected as it is, it's not necessary anymore to be like, you know, here's a, I'm going to put this out on this label and this label has yeah. like X connection and that connection like knows a few other right. people and then that guy knows a magazine and then like, you know, this person yes. knows someone in Australia who can get it to that person and Precisely. all shit. These days it's just like, I'll just put it on Instagram post and just like make sure I do all the tagging correctly in the first comment on the post and then everyone somehow yeah. sees it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like, a, it's almost like the clout of the label, you know, doesn't carry as much weight anymore because it's almost like anyone with enough social media influence can be their own brand these days, right? So essentially the, the brand strength of of all these iconic labels don't quite carry as much weight as they do anymore. And it's just a different era. It's just, you know, like I remember when, when I was releasing uh, crying over pros on planet Mew, that planet Mew message board, it was so rabid with fans that it kind of didn't matter what they dropped. It was just, it was almost like, some crazy sneaker drop on StockX. It was just kind of like whatever they would put out, people would eat it up, you know, because the strength of the Planet Mew brand was like so strong, you know what I mean? Um, but it's it's just a different time, you know? It's just a different day and age. And I think um, a lot of those phenomenal electronic legacy labels, um, you know, like I'm not even a hundred percent sure. Like the ethos is still the same at this current day and age, you know? So, yeah, no, I agree. I think there's like some sort of uh, like clout or some sort of um, like pride to be had in saying like, you know, I had a release on warp records or something. Precisely. Precisely. Right. And, and, and how much does that mean at this day and age? You know, I think, I think that's what, 
you know, like uh, I was trying to, I was trying to grapple with like during that process of like sending, sending my music out to these labels and stuff was kind of like, and after being rejected a bunch was just kind of like, well, I mean, does that really mean anything? Like, as you said, like, you know, to put out a record on Warp these days or anything, does, does that really mean what it used to mean? I, I don't know, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, it's hard to say, you know? I, I think as a business vehicle, it, it doesn't. I mean, like, I, I think for instance, if I put out a release on Warp these days, I would probably get um, recognition from a bunch of people who didn't know me beforehand, mm-hmm. right? But but it wouldn't be like, uh, it, the question I always ask myself is like, is that worth like 50% of my royalties? Which is, you know, if the yeah. album makes like 50 grand, over its lifetime, is it worth $25,000 to be introduced to, you know, an extra 10 people? And, right. you know, it can it can be if those extra, you know, 10 or 100 or 1,000 people or whatever end up becoming super fans who, like, come to every show and buy all your shit and whatnot. Right. Um, so if you think about it that way, like, maybe. But uh, I think, like, what, what we're talking about, um, more the reason why you stick with a, with a um, label like that at this point, I think is just to like feel kind of like you're a part of this you know, exclusive family or something like that. Right, but 100%. And I think that's really what I had to get over myself on, right? Was just kind of like, you know, just kind of like take take my ego out of the equation and just be like, you know what? That's that's not what this record is about anyways. You know what I mean? You know, it's <laughs> you're just like, like, damn it, I'd come to grips. You know, like, yeah, like, like, I think, I think the point was really just to kind of like, you know, share, share some music that was like personal to me with the world, you know, not really just, um, I don't know, just like another accolade for, um, for the resume, so to speak, you know? Right. Yeah. Like add that to the Wikipedia, put put a little bracket next to it that says planet move again. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, yeah, the album was cool, man. I, I had to listen to it the other night uh, when you sent it to me. Um, I actually laid right behind myself here on the floor and listened to it. Oh, and, uh, dope. Awesome. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, a lot of, a couple of the tracks reminded me of Flume a lot, like I had that. Um, and that's why I thought it sounded sort of modular. It sounded like Morphogene, like there was just a bunch of like weird little looping synths that had been like cut up and like uh, sort of um, sounded mm-hmm. like when you put something like a tiny bit of a synth in a sampler and just have it go like ding, 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 like around that one little part and then you like shift the loop point so it like starts doing that at a different point. Mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel like I hear that a lot in Flume's music and um, and I feel like he probably does it with Morphogene and that's why I thought uh, you might have been doing it the same way. And I the other reason I thought of that is because I remember one day I was in um some Reactor Blocks Zoom call, like learning about Reactor Blocks from um that guy who does all the toy box audio stuff. Yeah. I think. Totally. And, um, yeah, and I remember you were in that call as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I actually like like as we had discussed, uh, I I didn't really use too much Eurorack on this record. I think like there was like a bunch of effects processing on edits that was done at the end with with some Euro stuff. But you know, like a lot of this record was written on the go, and I just I just didn't have you know like my rig out there with me on the road. Um, I kind of did towards the end. I had like a little kind of portable skiff that that I brought on that uh, Nightmare Slander Seven Lions tour. Um, but it was also just kind of like such a hassle to like whip up, power up, plug in like every <laughs> night in the green room and stuff. I actually didn't really end up using it too much. However, you know, I think a lot of the production 
ethos like for this record was inspired by Eurorack. It's funny because when I first started getting into Eurorack, Thaish from Noisia, he was like, he's like, bro, I, I'm just going to give you one warning. He's like, I don't want to see you buy a ton of modules and make no music. <laughs> you know, he's just like, yeah. I just want to put that out there right now because he's like, you know, and he, he was like taking pictures of his studio. He's like, look at all this stuff. Like, look at all this stuff I have lying around that's just sitting around, just like not even being used. He's like, don't become that. He's like, I'm going to hold you accountable. <laughs> like, I want to make sure that you're actually going to use all this stuff. And, you know, like I totally went deep down the rabbit hole with, uh, with your rack because I came from a software modular background with reactor blocks and VCV and, and Maximus P and all that kind of stuff. And then <clears throat> got into got into your rack the opposite way, you know, from software into hardware. And yeah, like I think for, I think for like a year period, I just bought and consumed tons of your rack. And I think it was, I think like it was awesome to play with. And like I recorded like tons of noodling jams, but the amount of stuff that I actually ended up using was like microscopic and when the pandemic hit, I actually ended up selling off pretty much, I would say probably like 80% of like my Eurorack collection. Yeah, I did the same thing. I have like 80 <laughs> HP like mounted into my desk now and that's it. And it's literally precisely. Just, yeah, it's more, it's morphogen, uh, yeah. QPass, plasma drive, maths, and like a couple other things. It's essentially shit that you can just send stuff out of the computer yeah. into these and back into the computer just totally to get hardware yeah like noise into like the i've signal. i've got a i've got my er301 a mimia phone a nebulae um a clouds clone maths um <clears throat> couple couple filters and you know the instrual complex oscillator and yeah like mordax data and like yeah that's kind of about it <laughs> Yeah, I think um, unless you're going to like sort of jump right off the deep end and do like what Richard Devine and Colin Benders and all those guys yeah. do and just have these like like just insane huge systems and yeah. like that becomes your thing and that's like how you make music and you have this like crazy I'm never going to like use a computer in the process type mindset about it, then it's like maybe worth it but, <laughs> but it's also incredibly expensive and I imagine really, really hard to tour that kind of thing because yeah traveling with that amount of gear would be yeah crazy. I, I i mean like like it's funny for me because like I, I mean like this has happened to me so many times like i've gone through so many phases of owning tons and tons of hardware and then selling it all and then reacquiring tons and tons of hardware and then selling it all like literally like right at the top of the pandemic i had like a grip of like your rack like a ton of ton of different cases i had like all the electron boxes like was just like accumulating all this gear and I was trying so hard to like basically use hardware as an excuse to stimulate my creativity because I didn't want to engage with a computer to make music. But what I, what I ended up realizing was that like, you know, come to grips, like this album that was like pretty much close to being done was all made like on the go, like in Ableton and Bitwig, like in, you know, green rooms and tour buses and like airplane lounges and stuff like that. And, you know, like I just... I just couldn't Brit like reverse engineer and bridge the gap and try to figure out a way to bring the hardware in at the 11th hour. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, um, 
what I really had done like for that, for that whole past year was basically just spend a ton of money to acquire all this gear that I had a ton of time like jamming on and like, you know, basically making a ton of Instagram stories with, but I didn't actually use in any of the songs really on come to grips. And then like, I really just had to be honest with myself and just be like, I mean, like I love playing and noodling on gear for like an hour, but that's just not really my creative workflow and how I actually make music. You know what I mean? Like I, I really use the computer as the central hub for, for my creativity and you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. noodling on hardware for an hour <laughs> and like recording an hour's worth of audio is, and going back and cutting it all up and finding the best bits. That's just not how I really make music, you know? Yeah, I feel like quite often when you do that uh, with Eurorack and you're just recording tons and tons of stuff and then you sort of go back and you have this like mentality of, oh man, there's so much like really good stuff in there. And then you actually listen back through it. You realize a lot of it is not actually that cool. And it, and it was only that cool because, <laughs> I don't know, you feel so, um, for lack of a better word, like disabled or like just uh, at a sort of um, disadvantage uh, or, uh, you know, hand, like handicapped, I guess on there, because it's just, it's so much harder to make music yeah. on, on Eurorack than it is in a so computer. Much it's harder, like, if you're right? in a computer, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Bam, bam, bam. Like change a bunch yeah. of shit around, change a bunch of shit around. Like you just in so much of a flow of just like, uh, trying a bunch of stuff to try and yeah. get like something sounding good that I don't know, you're more objective in the moment, I think on a computer of like what actually is sounding good and what is not because you're more comfortable and, and quick in, in a computer. Yeah. Whereas on Eurorack, it's like, it's so hard to get a patch going and just like anything happening that you just try and like convince yourself that all of that, like you start to put the value on the effort as being good. You're like more effort equals better music, right? And you right you get that like in in uh software as well where you're like oh no i spent like an hour making that snare drum i can't not use it now right when, when like right. in reality the first snare that you pull out of the new like decap drums that knock pack might be better <laughs> suited to the track so it's like <laughs> big up decap <laughs> yeah yeah i just found out he lives in knob hill which is actually really close to me oh okay right on yeah big up big up decap killing the sample pack game man yeah, he's always like number one on Splice these days. He's like he's the new cashmere. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got it figured out, man. But you know he what I mean? Like it, sometimes you can just pull out like a cashmere snare or a crane snare or whatever, and it's just like oh, yeah. that just works. Like that just sounds great. Totally, Versus like man. Um, totally. If you spend like an hour or two making a snare in your modular rig, for instance, you'll right. try to convince yourself that it's better somehow, even if it doesn't work in the tune at all. Well, well, I I think I think there's also kind of like there's a tendency for us all to get too much in our heads when we're working on hardware to be like, Oh, well, because I made it on the hardware, it must be better, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I mean, like I went through a very similar process of like what exactly what you're describing of just kind of like, you know, how much, how much harder it is to realize a computer based workflow on hardware. Like when you're thinking on the computer and you're thinking like, okay, I've got this sound, I need to process it a bunch, boom, 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 drop my plugins on, EQ, compress, you know, slap some, slap some verb on it, whatever. All that is like 10 times harder to do on your rack. Not only do you need to have all the modules, right? But then to, then to get it all like routed up properly and everything, it's just, it's, it's so much more of like um, an involved workflow that 
you might as well not even like look at it in those terms, right? And I think that's really, that's really the key when working uh, with your rack and hardware is to not approach it from the standpoint of like, let me take like how I produce on a computer and like how I'm good at doing that and apply it to your rack. I think that's kind of like the wrong way to look at it. You know, it's like when, when I first started getting into your rack, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, totally. I fully get this. Like, okay, I need, I need a sequencer because like, you know, like that's how we do things on, on the computer. And I need like a bunch of modules that can, I can hook up to the sequencer. Then you start acquiring some drum modules and you start acquiring some synth voices and stuff. And like, you start approaching it from, from that kind of angle. And then when you finally have all that stuff together and you've got your WMD performance mixer and you've got everything going into that and you start like making music with it, it sounds like Tonka toys, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. it sounds like so primitive and basic and stuff, you know? And then like, I actually think that's like the wrong way to, to approach it. I think it's more of like, um, you know, uh, taking a look taking a look at what you got and approaching it from the complete opposite end of kind of like well approaching things from like a a piano roll midi clip sequenced style format that's like ideal for a computer but you know i really think like coming at it from the complete opposite end of like okay if i want like a looping sequence how do i do that with without using a sequencer or something you know what i mean like how do you do that with just using maths to create notes or, you know, uh, create yeah. gates and stuff as well too? Like, how do you come at it from the complete opposite direction? And, you know, I think the way to go about it with um, Eurorack is instead of like you're saying, come at it from like a pattern-based uh, perspective. It's better to come at it from like a logic-based perspective, right? Like, if this happens, trigger this other yeah. thing, and then if that gets triggered, then send something to this, and then if that receives the thing then like open this gate over here and you know ping a message back to the start of the whole chain that did all of that or something you know yeah totally i i think the one really good thing about kind of like like diving deep down the Eurorack rabbit hole for a year that really helped in my kind of my my production process and my creative process was really just taking a lot of the things that i learned in Eurorack world and then applying them inside of the computer and when you work in something like Bitwig, it's it's great for that, you know, because there's basically this whole architecture of like modular modulators, right? So, you know, you can take the idea of like, oh, well, when something receives a gate, I also want it to split out, spit out kind of like a random voltage, you know, which is something when you're working in Ableton, unless you kind of, you have all those Max for Live devices, you don't really think about things in that kind of a way, you know? Mm. Like I think when I'm working in Ableton, I approach things from a, very much of like, I have a clip, I enter MIDI into the clip, and then I go from there, kind of a way. Right. You know, but like, having worked in Eurorack for so long, and obviously with reactor blocks and everything, really kind of taking a lot of those ideas of kind of like, you know, loops that are not perfect divisions of like four, you know, like not working in loops of like four, 16, eight, or whatever, but making the loop points like loop in weird spots or kind of, you know, when a MIDI note gets fired into this modulator, it's going to spit out like a random, you know, a random message to somewhere else, like deep embedded into this like a uh, instrument chain or something that will just give this thing some sort of character and some sort of variety that you're normally not going to get just by working with, you know, plugins on a normal yeah. basis, you know? 
Yeah, I also feel like um, there's not a lot that you can't do in software that you can do in Eurorack, but it just yes. uh, Eurorack just makes you think about stuff differently. I, I remember the first time I played with my U, uh, with modular stuff, I just started plugging like the outputs of uh, like oscillators into the inputs of filters, and then the output of that filter like back into the input of an oscillator, and just like started getting all these crazy noisier sounding bases. Yeah, and I was like, oh wow, that's like how you make that sound <laughs> that I've been trying to make for a long ass time, and then. I went back to synth like that's pretty modular like Bazil or phase plan or yeah. anything like that. And I was like, oh, you can actually just do all that routing. Like the same thing exists here. I just never thought totally. to do it because of the way that it was presented to me, right? Right. Totally. So I think Eurorack is good for that stuff. It kind of like unlocks this potential for you to think about synthesis a completely different way. Yeah, I, I think that was like the really good takeaway from like going deep down that rabbit hole for an entire year was that uh, – it really opened up like a different part of my creativity. But yeah, like exactly what you're saying. Like I realized that I didn't need to just do it on hardware and I could revert back to using software. I could revert back to using reactor blocks, um, <clears throat> max for live devices, Bitwig modulators, um, the Bitwig grid, all that to achieve similar things that, uh, that I was getting out of hardware. Um, I want to talk about crying over pros because uh, that was like a kind of, um, pretty important album for me personally, but also I think for the kind of experimental electronic music scene as a whole. Uh, how, how was that album produced? Was that mostly hardware or was that <clears throat> mostly software or like what was the process like for that? No, man, that was uh, that was made all in Pro Tools. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, it was uh, like my, my uh, childhood... Uh, best friend that I went to middle school and high school with, he got a job at DigiDesign, like literally straight out of college. And I was still in college at USC at the time. And he was like, he's like, hey man, listen, like we're, we're dropping this thing uh, called the Digio One. And you, you can basically use Pro Tools, but you don't have to spend like thousands and thousands of dollars for a TDM system. He's like, I can get one half off. Like, do you want one? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I'll give it a shot. And, and at that point in time, I was, um, I was uh, <clears throat> producing on uh, basically Motu's version of, of a DAW. It was called AudioDesk. So it was basically digital performer, but without the MIDI. <laughs> and that's how I was making a lot of my early beats. And I was using a tracker, but with AudioDesk. And then, like, he basically sent me a Digio One. And that was kind of my first foray into, like, oh shit, okay, here we go. Like, you know, kind of like arranging audio on a linear timeline. And that was even like the version of Pro Tools that they had at that point in time. I think it was like, I think it was like Pro Tools like 5.1 or something, but like there weren't even instrument tracks yet. You know what I mean? It was like, like you had a MIDI track and then you had to route that, you know, basically to some like freestanding uh, instrument you know what I mean? Right, right, right. <laughs> like, like Reactor wasn't even, it wasn't even like, like an Artaz plugin at that point. And I think like Ableton 1 hadn't even released yet. I remember getting the Digio 1 and then I remember like about a year later getting Ableton 1.0, you know? So yeah, Crying Over Pros was, was basically, it was, it was written, yeah, like in Pro Tools with, with the Digio 1. And yeah, it was like a big lesson and just kind of like, you know, learning, learning how to make the most with what I had, because I didn't really have any like hardware 
since either. Like, I think I had like, um, I think I had like a, you know, a few just kind of like rack mounted sound modules. I had like a JV 1080 and like, um, like a, like a Triton rack and something like that and a Roland Phantom or something like that. But like, you know, it was really so much of it really just came from arranging audio on a timeline. And a lot of people ask me like, Oh, what plugins did you use back then to like create all that glitchy stuff? And it was like, it was like really none. Like honestly, like so much of it was just all done by chopping audio like by hand, hand. Yeah. because, because my computer wasn't even strong enough to like really handle plugins at that point in time. And not only that, but like the RTAS plugin was in its infancy at that point in time. Like it was so new. Like when I was making it, like the native instruments, like they didn't even have RTAS plugins at that point in time yet. I think I was like, I was using like Logic 4.8.1 and Pro Tools 5.1. And you could use like some, you know, kind of VSTs in Logic at that point in time. Uh, this was even before the audio unit even existed. Like there weren't even audio units out yet. You know what I mean? Um, but as far as RTAS plugins go, <laughs> I think like uh, there wasn't really a lot of stuff. I remember on TDM, there was like the virus TDM plugin at that point in time. And that was kind of like, that was kind of it. And that was like a monumental thing. It was like, oh shit, we got a virus like in a T <laughs> as a TDM plugin. That's crazy, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, it was like so much of that was just all done, done by hand and basically just um, slicing up audio by hand. Right. And where were you getting your samples at that time? Because I remember uh, something that was kind of difficult when I first got into music and I got into producing around 2007. So just when you put out your second album, I think mm -hmm. was sort of just when I actually like started writing electronic music. I, before that, I've been uh, just doing metal. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, I realized one of the things that I found pretty difficult, uh, up until probably like 2013, 2014 was actually getting my hands on like really nice kicks and really nice snares. And like, yeah. you know, th there was a point in time, I feel like where like your sample library that you had was like actually pretty special and unique to you. Whereas yeah. like now it's, you go on. Now the playing field's been even fully field, equalized, right? you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, at that point in time, um, you know, obviously splice loop cloud, none of that stuff even existed at that point in time. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the samples, at, at least on that record were actually sampled drums from, from a cork Triton. You know, I was like, okay. oh, well, you know, that's how the Neptunes are, are making their beats and stuff. I basically just mm -hmm. like recorded all the stock kicks and snares from like a Triton and basically just like processed all of them on my own. I think there were like probably like 25 drum sounds total <laughs> that I had on my computer. Um, and and a lot of it was actually um, like. I think later on down the line, like, you know, kind of like, you know, recording Foley and stuff and like, you know, uh, you know, making music with that became more of a thing. But at that point in time, like, yeah, like I, I had like a mini disc recorder and was just like walking around, just like recording stuff in my apartment or like walking around in supermarkets, like recording stuff and kind of like using that to layer on top of drum sounds and stuff. And also I, um, I, I worked in jingles, you know, I was a, 
I was a composer at a couple of jingle houses. And back then, you know, jingle houses, they had the money to buy sample CDs. And, um, yeah, so basically, you know, like the jingle houses would buy the sample CDs. I would just like copy all that onto a hard drive and, you know, there'd be some samples there. The quality of sample CDs back then, they were like way crappier than they are now. Like you're not getting, you're not getting decaf drums that knock. It was like, <laughs> you know, like Uber shawls, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't even know, know what sample CDs they were, but they sounded like so bad. But, you know, it's like, it was really just like all about like, like, you know, what you did with it, really. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Just taking what was there and just kind of like, yeah, like, you know, like, how do you push this with with what you have? You know what I mean? Um, at that point in time, like with Crying Over Pros, I mean, like, the amount of plugins at my disposal was so small. I mean, it was like Bomb Factory plugins that came with my Digio Yeah, one. like audio damage <laughs> buffer override and shit like that yeah like the camel fat and <laughs> yeah <morphine>. exactly <laughs> precisely precisely i mean that's that's essentially the kind of stuff that i was dealing with at that point in time but even less than that because I, since i was producing on pro tools you know it was like the amount of artas plugins at that point in time it was it was so small it was like literally like bomb factory was like like pretty much what came with your digital one was pretty much what you were using. You know what I mean? I have to um, Google these bomb factory plugins to see what they look like. I mean, they? like they, they were basically like the first people that started doing like analog emulations, you know? Mm. Um, these things look like, uh, they like those plugins that they, I guess, try to make look like a real piece of hardware or whatever. Yeah, Totally. Totally. I always find that weird, right? They're like, oh, yeah, you want to, you like open up some organ plugin or whatever, and it's got like fucking drawing, uh, like this weird photoshopped like wood around the edges and shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, fuck. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I kind of had a similar experience to you in uh, like one of the ways I got my samples was I went to SAE in Sydney, which mm-hmm. is um, not the headquarters. The headquarters is in Byron, but it's like, one of the main like SAEs in the world. Uh, so I went there and they had um, a unit uh, called, what was it called? can't remember the name of the unit, but it was basically like do sound for film. Like the, the project for that unit was like take a film clip and like do sound replacement for it. I think okay. I took like an episode of like Celebrity Deathmatch or something and like redid all the sound for like a fight. And uh they, the computer that they had us use at the school to do that just had like a ton of sample libraries on it. And I just like copied them all to my hard yeah. drive. And then that's what I used for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people these days don't realize how, uh, how easy, like it's so easy now to be able to produce really crazy, good music. Dude, even so on a phone. easy, dude, so easy. It's, it's wild. Yeah. Like back then it was like, like exactly as you say, kind of like, your sample library was, was gold. Right. And you know, the craziest thing was that like back in the days of sample CDs, when sample, when sample CDs were actually like a CD or a DVD, like I remember when I was working at a jingle house, there was actually like, like the jingle house that I was working at was by coastal. They had, they had an office in Santa Monica. They had an office in New York city. And occasionally I would go back and forth, you know, uh, from New York uh, to Santa Monica and like work in both offices. And basically 
uh, my buddy that was working in the New York office, he had found this guy that was basically like, essentially like slanging black market sample CDs. I kid you not. Like essentially like he would, he would email us a list and it would literally be like every East West sample CD, Ubershaw sample CD, whatever. Like over this trench coat, he's like, you need kicks. <laughs> Dude, I, I kid you not. And, and like the whole entire deal would basically be like, like my buddy would go and drop off a hard drive with them. We'd basically like tell them everything that we would want. And, you know, like essentially you'd be getting all these sample CDs for obviously a fraction of what they cost, you know, like back then they'd probably cost like anywhere from like 50 to 150 bucks a pop. We'd be getting them for like, you know, like $5 a piece. So, you know, you, you basically pay this guy 500 bucks, you know, you get like a hundred sample CDs worth of stuff filled up on your drive. Like there was like a legit, like black market samples dealer. And that, that basically was just the guy who had the technical know-how and the internet speed to download torrents at the time. Right. I'm assuming I'm assuming, or maybe, or maybe he, he also worked at some post-production house himself, right? Mm. And had, had access to uh, the sample libraries himself and like had a means of ripping them and then had a means of flipping them as right. well too. But like that, you know, like it was such a trip, you know, like I remember like the day that that happened, like it was it was funny, man. But like when we finally got the drive back, we were like, no way. Like, you know, it, it totally worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I used to basically go to just like friends' houses with my hard drives and we'd just do sample swaps all the time. That's kind yeah. of how it worked back, back totally. then. Because internet speeds were not really fast enough to be like, oh, yeah, you want like one gigabytes of crap that I just have lying around here? You go, bam, Dropbox. It's yeah. like over to you in five minutes because I have symmetric fiber now. Or like, you know, it's yeah. back totally. in the day, it was like, not happening like you want to upload one gigabyte good luck talk to my dad he'll yeah. <laughs> he'll be like no we don't have that much internet son <laughs> yeah totally he's like you've ruined my work computer <laughs> with your yeah. samples yeah yeah it's it's a whole different day and age now you know i think like the power of computers as well too you know computers back then used to not be as strong like you you kind of really needed like a pro tools tdm rig or like the the strongest computer you could imagine to really you know get your entire track in there with like you know more than 16 tracks mixable with all the plugins on it that you wanted i mean even even at that point in time you'd still really be pushing the computers i mean even i remember like when we when the glitch mob like when we wrote drink the sea you know, like we did that and we had like, I think like three or four UAD cards in a tower and we were pushing that thing to, to the brink. And now like when I think of like modern day times and like the, the power of computers, you know, it's like I make everything on a laptop now and I have, I have yet to have had any session in recent times that has maxed it out. I mean, granted, like, you know, I'm not making like glitch mob style arrangements, but, you know, still like I haven't even pushed my current computer to the brink yet you know right and you're like on a plane using it and totally the battery is still at 99 percent when you land <laughs> <laughs> not like that but <laughs> i wish yeah no, we're not far off <laughs> battery technology is about to get a shitload better especially with like self-driving cars and all the yeah. e-bikes that are around and all that kind of stuff yeah um yeah man this yeah <laughs> producing back in the day was definitely not not what it is today but i also i also think that in some weird way um 
having that kind of creative limitation was like a good thing, right? And it also yeah. like part of something I think that makes producing so fun is the explorator, like the exploratory uh, process, right? So it's like you're yeah. finding new things and you're like, oh, that's fucking great. Like, like you're saying, you get this sample CD and you're like, well, what's on here? Like you're all excited about it and yeah. all this stuff. And I think a lot of um, that has been removed today via you know, things like Splice and YouTube, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there is things to explore and things to learn, but it's like almost too easy to get the information to get the assets, like the samples and whatnot these days that yeah, you just sort it, of get them all and then it just feels a little uh, like, you know, it's not as not as big of a reward as having to like chase down a sample pack from a friend or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think a lot of the production knowledge is like a lot more readily available online. Whereas like when I first started making music, there was... I mean, YouTube didn't even exist at that point. You know what I mean? It was like, there was no tutorial to teach you how to use any of this stuff. It was literally just like, here it is, figure it out in your own or, or read the manual. You know what I mean? And, and at least at that point in time, the circles that, that I used to run in, it was like, you know, like I used to be a resident DJ at this club called Concrete Jungle. So it was like a lot of drum bass producers and stuff. And it was like very taboo at that point in time to give out any production knowledge whatsoever right. it was like if you were a drum bass producer like you guarded that with your life <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. like you're not giving out any of those tips to anybody so it was really hard to like figure out how to uh how how to make music in the beginning and um the way that I started was actually using trackers because um uh, a buddy of mine that I went to college with that I was actually in a hip-hop jungle battle crew with this guy Kenny Siegel who's part of Team Supreme we, we went to college together. He was using a tracker at that point in time on a PC to make music. So I basically found the, the only um, Mac tracker at that point in time. I've, I think it was called like Player Pro or something. And that's like how I started like learning how to make music because there was no one else to like teach me otherwise. Like how do you arrange on a timeline in Pro Tools? Not, like I had to literally like figure all that out myself, you know? Right. Um, yeah, it was like a whole different ball game back then. Whereas now it's like there's so many great like YouTube tutorials to like teach you literally from like the very first step, like how to actually start making music, right? Um, so crying over pros, what you're saying is basically you getting Pro Tools and just figuring it out. And yeah, dude, that's so crazy because like I, I look at crying over pros as just one of those like seminal albums that you need in your collection next to like. <laughs> Amon Tobin, Izam, and like Tipper's Forward Escape, and like you know, like it's up there, I reckon, with those albums. Dude, it was it was literally me just like figuring out like how to express myself with with what I had at that point in time, mm. and you know, it was also like it was also during a time where it was like at least for me personally, it was just it was like hard to acquire music gear. You know, it was like I think I was beginning to produce, produce all that stuff like right at the, I think like one year after I graduated from college and stuff. And I was, I was basically totally broke. So I couldn't really afford any gear or anything, you know, it was like literally just had to work with what I had, which was like a Digio one, a few like, you know, ghetto guitars and basses from when I was in college, really low level stuff, you know, and just making the most with what I had, you know?
Yeah. So all the guitars and stuff in that album were recorded by you and then just like resampled and edited or were they mostly Yeah, I mean it like was like West literally stuff? like fully just like, you know, like SM57 with like some like really crappy like, you know, 10-year-old acoustic guitar that I had just in, you know, the the apartment that I was living in at that point in time. It was like so bare bones and like raw and it was like so DIY bedroom style. Like I didn't have any nice gear whatsoever. You know, it was literally just, literally just making it happen on with whatever I had, you know? Yeah. I think that's the way to do it. Like people always, I think, or, you know, maybe I can just speak for myself, but like I always, uh, like had this issue when I was younger, um, and still do to some degree these days. And it sounds like you do too in the sense that you like buy a ton of hardware all the time is that, um, I always think, Oh, I need this like other thing so I can like do this yeah. thing. Right. Or I need, you know, I need this, uh, uh, like I'll listen to a square pusher song for instance. And I'm like, Oh, I can't make that, that sound unless I have an SH 101 and then, <laughs> or like, um, I'll listen to like an old Apex thing and I'll be like, no, I, I can't do that. Cause I don't have like the right drum machine that he's using for that or whatever. And, like rather than think about it that way, I should just think more along the lines of how can I do something that's influenced by that in my own way with the shit that I have available to me. Yeah. Um, and it sounds kind of like that's what you're doing with Crying Over Pros. And yeah, it's you totally. got like a really unique result because of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think nowadays it's really easy to get wrapped up in FOMO, right? You know, with Instagram and social media everything that's happening is really easy to see everybody's gear collections. You know, like you look at Richie, you see his entire studio just looks like a total foreign spaceship in there. Like with like, like the most insane Eurorack collection of all time and like all his crazy synths and everything like that, you know? And like, it's really easy to get wrapped up in that and be like, I need that in order to create, <laughs> yeah. you know? And um, nobody needs that except for Richard. <laughs> even Richie doesn't need that. I remember, I remember like I was, uh, I was, uh, FaceTiming him not too long ago just to, just to catch up and say hi. And, uh, you know, he was, he was inside of his studio. Like he was showing me like all his crazy Eurac stuff and everything. And then he brought me into the other room that you don't normally see on Instagram. It's like the room next to his studio. Right. Dude, that guy, that guy's got, he's got your rack in like Tupperwares that are like tucked underneath his couch and like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just like all these Tupperwares full of stuff. And he was just like, oh, bro, look at this, man. Look at this. He's like, you know, he's just got like all this crap that he's accumulated. It's almost like he's like a, he's like a gear hoarder or something. Oh, he totally <laughs> is. He, um, like I was talking, I had him on my podcast the other day and I was asking him about this, like one Instagram video that I saw of his where he was recording an Aztec death whistle. And he's mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, yeah. I got like 30 of them upstairs. He's like, I just collect Aztec death whistles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He it's cool. Though. I think so like funny. Uh, you know, people like that who have the space to collect gear like that and the means to do it. Uh, it's like crazy going to someone's house like that. Like the flashbulb is another one like that. Actually, yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, people just like send him gear and he's just like been accumulating gear and like never gotten rid of any of it. I went, I've been to his house a couple of times and it's just like a fucking history museum of samplers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think for those guys as well too, uh, I think like you also need a house like big enough to house all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Both of those guys live in like Georgia and stuff. And, you know, they kind of live out in the, in the suburbs and stuff. And, you know, it's like they have the means to be collectors and stuff. I mean, for me, it's like, 
I'm trying to like Marie Kondo my life and like live with as little things as possible. And it just, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Minimalism is good, man. (laughs) I I agree. Like whenever I see like my girlfriend is like this, right. She's, she, um, every year just purge a bunch of belongings and like tries Mm -hmm. to just, she's, uh, just a programmer. So she pretty much just tries to have like a set of headphones and like a laptop and, you know, like a very tiny MIDI controller and like, you know, just all like her gear is like very sparse. And every time I look at her setup, I'm like, wow, it just seems like not a lot to worry about, which seems cool. Yeah. It's like the more mm-hmm. shit you have, it's just more stuff to like uh, carve out some mental real estate. Dude, right? that that that's what I was realizing kind of like before I sold off like all my stuff uh, when the pandemic happened. It was like I'd accumulate another piece of gear and it'd be like the desk space would just shrink more. And I'd, I'd find myself getting like, <clears throat> I don't know, just like a little bit more like nervous. Like when I'd sit down in the studio, I'd be like, man, it's like so cramped in here. Like I can't. There's like so little room for my mouse and like my, you know, like to type and stuff. It's like I just got crap everywhere, you know, and like mm-hmm. half of it's not even like wired up the right way to even like get into my computer. You know what I mean? It's just like it's just all this stuff just sitting <laughs> everywhere. And uh, yeah. I, I found I found myself being like very like way more scatterbrained that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I just I, it was it was hard for me to really like lock in with my creativity when I had tons of gear. Cause I also felt the obligation to use it. Like when I would just be like, oh, I really need to finish up this beat that I made like, you know, five weeks ago or whatever. I would see like all this hardware sitting around. I'd be like, oh man, like, yeah. Like if I'm not using this, like, man, it kind of like, I bought it, but I'm not using it. And like, I really should be using it. But then this thing is made inside the computer. It's like all like <laughs> nice and neat and clean. And like, you know, like I would, I would be getting like kind of like creative anxiety a little bit, you know? Mm. Yeah. I, d- I definitely think owning gear takes up mental real estate or just owning belongings in general to some degree, I think takes yeah. up me- mental real estate somehow. Like it's just a thing you have to be concerned about, like whether it's the, like you said, the creative anxiety to use it or whether it's just like, I don't know, worrying about its condition, like whether or not it's working or like worrying about right. how much space it's taking up or whatever. It's Yeah, and then also worrying about your mastery of the piece of gear, right? It's kind of right. like, you know, like the that piece of gear, it's, it's only going to give back to you in return as much as you've put into it. You know, mm. it's like when I watch a lot of these like OP1 videos on YouTube, I'm like, these guys are like OP1 masters. Like they've invested so much time into being a wizard on the OP1. You know, and, and like I kind of felt like the more gear that I'd acquire, I kind of feel like my skills with each piece of gear would be like tapering off a little bit. The more I accumulated, be like, I'd be getting really good at using one thing. Like, you know, like, yeah, like I'd have an analog rhythm or something like that. I'd be getting really, really good at using it. But then I'd acquire like an Octatrack and then I'd be like, you know, my skills would just kind of like taper off and I'd be like, oh, what's that like button combo that I needed to do in order to do this one thing? And I'd start forgetting how to use the piece of gear a little bit. And then I kind of realized that like my skills with all my hardware, they just like, they started off at a really high place and then just like be getting worse and worse and worse at like using all this gear because I had too much of it, you know? And there's like all this stuff to remember with each box that you had or like each like, you know, your rack module that you had or like, especially with your rack, you know, like all these like hidden functions that like all these modules have. Sometimes you'd be like, 
oh man, what was that like crazy? Like I need to hold down this button while I press this button in order to make the module do this one thing that I want it to do. And you just kind of forget how to use all this stuff after a while, you know? Yeah, you're better off just like sticking to one BST or something and just learning it really well. But there's yeah, also be- arguments against that too, right? Which is, um, and yeah. this is an argument that Dylan makes, which is uh, if you're making a track and everything is like synthesized from the same thing, like if it's all synthesized from Serum, then it kind of in some way um, like makes the mix down harder because it's like all the sounds are kind of homogenous and taking up the same type of spectral content. Whereas if you have like one sound from Serum, one sound from a random rogue drum machine, one sound from a nylon string guitar you have laying around in your apartment, one, like all these different sounds from different things, then all of a sudden um, they sort of just naturally can sit on top of each other because they're just taking up different spaces sort of because they're all so different sonically. Yeah. I, I fully agree with that. Well, it's, it, I guess like your range of musical colors is maybe more limited when, when you're a master of serum and that's all you know how to paint with, right? Mm-hmm. I, think it's good, I think it's good to have diversity for sure. I, I fully agree with that. Um, but I, I firmly believe in like, you know, becoming, becoming a ninja master at whatever your tool set is. And um, I mean, serum's got a pretty wide range. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah, it's, man, it's essentially I think it's, a sampler as well. So Yeah, you know, like I think, uh, I think you could paint with a lot of different colors in that plugin. But but I agree. I think it's I think it's better to have mastered maybe like a few more in your arsenal as well too. You know, mm. right? Yeah, it's probably better to master a few things though rather than buy, you know, four hundred HP of modules. <laughs> yeah, that's just gonna take you like, I mean, probably like way way more time than you would want to spend mastering all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, as far as I got with modular is I filled a 420 HP box and I was just uh-huh. like, so it was like, you know, a fairly sizable, like heavy unit. Like it, it yeah. sat over here on this now, which is empty. Yeah. Um, and it was just, yeah, it, I to learn all of those modules inside and out would have yeah, taken like a year of just straight moduling and that's it. Yeah. And, and I mean, the crazy thing is like when you're in the Eurorack rabbit hole, it's like, I mean, like, I don't know if you experience the same thing, but it's like, you just get that like crazy, like crack addiction, the Euro crack addiction where you're like, oh, you play with a module for a couple of weeks and you're like, oh, this is not working out for me. Throw it up on reverb so I can get this other one that just dropped. And you know what I mean? Like you never yeah. really have that full amount of time to like really like learn and sink into all those modules because you're always constantly trying to get your case to the point where it's like the best it could possibly be so at least for me it was like aside from the staples that always needed to stay in there right like the mats and the you know (laughs) the expert sleepers es8 style modules that just kind of have to be there you know I would just constantly be like buying and selling stuff on reverb, like nonstop, like all the time, you know? And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a dangerous place to be, man. Yeah. yeah, You definitely, definitely get a lot less music written that way too. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey, I noticed you have a mountain bike behind you. Do you, uh, do you mountain bike? Yeah, man. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a hardcore cyclist. Uh, I've been I've been really into cycling probably now for I mean man probably like upwards of 15 years been like really deep into it 
and have kind of gone in and out of like all different kinds of like cycling disciplines, you know, kind of like started off on the whole like brakeless track bike thing, then from there transitioned into being a roadie, then from there transitioned into riding cyclocross bikes, which, you know, basically now are just gravel bikes and stuff. Um, and then obviously going into mountain bikes and stuff. And I was really deep into the mountain biking thing for a while, probably like six to nine years ago. And we, we actually have like killer trails here in Los Angeles. And there would be this shuttle service that would pick us up at like, you know, basically six o'clock in the morning at, at the JPL parking lot and take us all the way to the top of Mount Wilson and drop us off. And it's, it's literally aside from riding Whistler's top of the world all the way to the bottom uh, where the ski lifts are, it's, it's like literally the longest man-made shuttle run in North America. You descend 6,000 feet. Nice. So I was like riding that like constantly all the time. And, and it was like just at the beginning of like when Enduro mountain bikes were like beginning to like take off and be a thing in the United States. And then um, I, there was a glitch mob tour that happened. I think it was like during the Love, Death, Immortality tour. I brought my, my mountain bike on tour with me. Uh, the tour started off, first date was in Vancouver, so I flew up to Whistler and like rode up in Whistler for five days before the tour actually started. Rode Moab that summer as well too because we had a few days off in Salt Lake City. Uh, came back, rode Winter Park, Colorado, and I was like super feeling myself and came back to LA, got a season pass at Snow Summit for the bike park and was going out there and I was basically getting injured like every time I would go. And finally, the, the straw that finally broke the camel's back was, I think the final time that I went, I went off a jump and, or I went off a drop, I cracked my helmet and I found out that like on that drop, two people died on that drop that, that summer. Oh shit. Like they died going off of that drop. And so basically my friend who lives in the arts district, she was like, you know what, man, like you should really maybe try like rock climbing because it's like it's kind of like you get a similar rush as mountain biking, but it's like way less dangerous. And she basically took me to LA boulders, which is like, you know, right around the corner from my loft. And yeah, like I, like I bought the climbing shoes that day and bought the membership. And like, I just like got totally hooked into rock climbing for basically like five years. Um, but when the pandemic hit all the gyms closed and there was kind of like a, an ethical issue going around with like, rock climbers of like whether even to climb outside and, and potentially bring COVID to small communities like Joshua Tree or Bishop that are not equipped to handle COVID breakouts. So I kind of just decided the responsible thing to, to be would just be to kind of like shut down like rock climbing until COVID is like way more chilled out and got back into cycling. And like, yeah, like during the pandemic, it was like <clears throat> got back into mountain biking again. Um, I've got a gravel bike as well too, that I ride on the weekends with my girl and, yeah, pretty much been into it full force, man. And yeah, it's been, it's been really, really nice. It's been like the one thing that's kind of really been keeping me sane during the pandemic. Cause I'm pretty much like outdoors every single day on my bike. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of the same about halfway. Like I said, I had like a drug issue in the middle of the pandemic and then mm -hmm. I like got over that and I'm learned that I was like really depressed through therapy and started taking antidepressants and shit. And then I was mm -hmm. like, Oh fuck, I have like, I have to, um, like find some new hobbies <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, and the one that I found that I really loved was mountain biking. 
So I've pretty much been yeah. mountain biking almost every day or every other day for like the last, you know, four or five months at this point. Oh, it's, and it's, it's, amazing. it's so much, it's so much fun. And yeah, I've actually, I've got an e-mountain bike. Like I've got a Santa Cruz bullet. I, I, I had a specialized enduro that I was riding, uh, up until about like a month or so ago. But, um, the funny thing was like when the pandemic started, I bought an e-mountain bike but I was really bad with it. I was, I was forgetting to charge it all the time and everything. And I'd show up to the trail It'd be, the battery would be dead. Um, and then, so I sold that and I kind of went through every subgenre of mountain biking. I basically, I got a, I got like a burly hardtail. I got a down country bike. I got a stump jumper Evo. I went back to riding like a specialized Enduro <laughs> and came full circle back to, um, finally getting back on like an e-mountain bike again. Yeah, your uh, your bike looks similar to mine. I'm looking at the bullet now. I, I have an Orbe Rise M10. Oh like. yeah, those are killer, man. How are you digging it? I, I love it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. The reason I got it is because like I was riding an e-bike before that. I was riding a Da Vinci. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just a enduro, but um, that was sick. But it was a bit heavy. It was like fifty something yeah. pounds, which for a mountain bike, if you're trying to go <laughs> yeah. up drops and jumps, it's like a bit much. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I got the Orbe, which is, uh, fully carbon and it's, yeah. uh, I want to say like 30 pounds or something. So it's about 20, yeah, 20 those pounds look lighter. Killer, man. Those look like awesome bikes, man. Yeah. Yeah. It kicks ass. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. So, um, yeah, I've been taking it out to Santa Cruz quite a lot. There's some great trails there. There's um, yeah, man. like flow trail is awesome. And, uh, uh-huh. yeah, so there's this other place called Skegs and Eggs that I ride a lot, which is really sick. Okay. We're going to have to go mountain biking sometime, man. Dude, I'm 100% done. Yeah, it's a, yeah. My bike is. I think I already mentioned an e-bike as well. But yeah, yeah, it's sick, man. I I know people like talk shit on e-bikers. They're like, oh, fucking e-bikers. But it's like, whatever, dude. I just get to go down the trail like four or five more times than you in a day. That that's exactly it. You know, like the funny thing was was like, <laughs> like at the top of the pandemic when I start started getting back into mountain biking. I I remember the very first ride that I went on with my buddy. It was just to this local trail out in Pasadena. It's called El Prieto. And like I was riding, uh, probably like a five-year-old Santa Cruz Nomad up this trail and it was in the middle of summertime. So it was like blazing, blazing hot, you know? Um, and, uh, I remember being so dead, like climbing up there. Like I was basically like, I was in really good rock climbing shape, but I wasn't in good mountain biking shape at all. And I remember being so destroyed and I was like, man, I was like, I was like, I'm, I'm just like not fit enough for this anymore. Like I need to get like an e-mountain bike, you know? And the funny thing was, was that when I got the e-mountain bike and I was like, I was super hyped on it at first. And I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I want. I can basically climb up to like all these crazy trails without being like totally dead by the time I get up here. But then, you know, there'd be the whole issue of like forgetting to charge it and everything. And then, and then I went back the full opposite end of things. And like, you know, went back to just like getting pedal bikes again. You know, I got a, a Yeti Arc C1 hardtail, um, uh, a specialized Epic Evo down country bike, specialized stump jumper Evo, basically like burly trail bike. I kind of like went through all those things. And then basically what, what made me go back to getting an e-bike was there's this trail out in, uh, out in Burbank that was dug during the pandemic. It's called Valhalla. And it's, it's in the Verdugo mountains and it's, it's basically the way that the, the way that the trail system is laid out, it's like perfectly lappable on an e-bike. Like it's basically you park at the base 
and you climb a fire road up 1300 feet for three miles and then you drop in the trail is you know probably like one and a half miles and then where it spits you out is where all the cars are parked and when i discovered that trail i was like oh man i should have sold my e-bike because this is like literally the perfect trail to do laps on an e-bike with and it's also like it's also like an insanely gnarly trail too so it's kind of like to to even just to do two laps on it on any enduro bike you know it's like on my specialized enduro is probably close to like 40 pounds and to climb 2600 feet just to do two laps on this thing like my body would just be destroyed like every single day doing that but yeah now that i have the e-bike it's like it's so easy just to basically just blast out three laps in like an hour and a half and like get back to the studio you know and exactly what you're talking about it's like so many people like clown on e-mountain bikes but the funniest thing is that like all the guys that i used to ride the shuttle with like six or eight years ago who are like all as some of like the fastest like rippers in los angeles on an enduro bike they all ride e-bikes now all yeah, of them i mean it makes <laughs> like I, I think the people who hang shit on e-bikers are just people who like i don't know maybe they're jealous they don't have the money to buy an e-bike or something like that or maybe they're just like you know purists kind of like in the analog world right it's like precisely people. that's exactly the comparison man the ex exact yeah. comparison is like, like man this uh non-e-bike it just has a warmer sound to it <laughs> exactly exactly yeah like like i find that like i find the people that clown on it generally tend to be people that come from more like road bike gravel bike or like cross-country mountain biking backgrounds that, you know, like where I think, I think climbing is like so much more of an enjoyable part of cycling, but you know, like, I think it's going to be very rare where you're going to find people who are like, yeah, I love, I love climbing with like my almost 40 pound enduro mountain bike with all my pads on and gear on and everything. I love climbing five miles to like get to the trail where it takes me five minutes to descend the trail. Right. I think you're going to find very, very few people that are going to say that they love that, you know? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think um, part of it is if you're a non e-biker and you're riding up, you know, some crazy three, four mile, uh, ascent to a drop, um, you, like if e-bikers just like hoon past you up on that, you're going to be like, motherfucker, <laughs> sitting there like putting in work. Um, yeah. I think that's one reason they might just get pissed off at e-bikers for, <laughs> for just, yeah. But I, I think like, I, I mean, I wear an Apple watch right when I ride. Mm -hmm. So it tells me exactly how many calories I, I burn and I've yeah. gone out on regular bikes and I've gone out on e-bikes and I burn the same. It's like I burn every time I ride, I burn like 1500 calories. Yeah. Um, but it's just like, you know, yesterday I went riding and I got to ride, uh, like two or three, uh, laps of this giant trail yeah. system rather than like if i wasn't on an e-bike i probably would have just done it once precisely like that's yeah like it, it's all about just you know like when you're on the e-bike you work as hard as you want to i mean obviously like what mode you put the bike in as well too whether it's in eco booster trail you know if you put the bike in eco i mean you still got to pedal your ass off up, up the mountain like there's no way around it even when i have the bike in boost like normally when i have my bike in boost I'm trying to blast out as many laps as I, as fast as I can just to get back home. Right. So I'm still basically like sprinting up the mountain. So exactly what you're saying. It's like, yeah, like I probably end up burning the same amount of calories in an hour and a half sprinting up the mountain on my e-bike than I would if I was basically just kind of, you know, pedaling with like my heart rate in like, you know, zone <clears throat> two or three for like two hours. You know what I mean? 
Right, exactly. Yes, like on a normal bike or an eco or whatever, it's you're still yeah pedaling a shitload. It's just you you're just going slightly faster than if you're on a non e bike. Yeah, you you work as hard as as you want to be working. That's kind of the way that I look at it. To, to me, it's is to me it's really just all about getting to the trailhead as fast as humanly possible. Oh, is, yeah, what, totally. is what e-bikes are really for me. Because at least, I, I don't know how it is up in Northern California, but in Southern California, pretty much everything that we have down here, it's like climb, 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 climb all the way till you get to where you can drop in. It's, it's, it's like a totally different style of riding. It's not like, you know, like when you go to a place like Moab, there's like a lot of like up and down, up and down, like undulating style mountain biking where I think maybe climbing is a little bit more enjoyable because there might be short, punchy technical climbs, sprinkled in the ride but in los angeles none of the riding's like that it's like you're climbing a thousand foot minimum anywhere to ride anything Damn. you know there's no there's no just like pull up to the trail and you just start riding some nice undulating up and down up and down trail system i mean it's kind of the same here except i think just in la it's a lot hotter as well so it's probably a little, little yeah. more brutal Yes, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, your bike actually looks like a like pretty similar in terms of its parts to the Orbe that I have. Um, yeah, like you have it looks like the Fox Thirty Six Kashima coated front forks, and geometry doesn't look too different. And stuff. It basically looks like the same bike, but it's like in the fifty pound range. Uh, I guess if totally. it's totally like extra large. Yeah, yeah. Your your style bike is kind of like the ultra lightweight style e bike, and mine's like the super heavy e-bikes with you know the more power and the bigger battery but dude there's like value to that like i said i had the da vinci before this bike and there was some mm -hmm. things i preferred about it like one thing is uh it's more like it feels like it has more traction because it's heavier so it's like if you sort of g out around a berm it just like grips way harder because of the weight yeah um, that's one thing and the other thing is obviously the battery is more powerful and lasts longer so it's like uh you, you go like the battery will will get you up to a higher speed quicker and, and also last just a little longer. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like when I, when I look into getting e-bikes, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I really want to get is, I mean, first and foremost, the bike itself has to be an enduro bike. So normally, you know, you're talking about 170 millimeter of travel front and rear, at least, you know, that cause just because of the stuff that we have here in Los Angeles around where I live, the style of trails that we're riding, like they're just that gnarly and that steep that require that. Um, and then secondly, yeah, in an e-bike, I'm, I'm mostly just looking for range. Like what's the, what's the highest elevation and the most amount of miles I can put on that bike. I find that the lighter, the lighter bikes, um, it's, it's interesting because I've actually ridden with a bunch of guys that have like like more like lighter style e-bikes, like a bunch of people who have specialized Levo SLs and stuff. And I guess apparently the range, and I didn't, I was, I didn't know this at all, but I guess apparently the range is comparable to the more 50 pound e-bikes. It's just that since the motor is like way less powerful, you work way harder, mm. you know? But, but if you're riding with like a big group of people who are all on e-mountain bikes, the general speed of everybody climbing generally tends to be pretty slow. Like nobody's putting it in boost and like railing it up the mountain. Like if you're in a big group ride, everybody's trying to conserve their battery to right, get as exactly, many laps yeah. in as possible. Yeah, you're just, you're just going sort of like 20% faster than you would be on a normal bike or something. 
Exactly. You're going like five miles per hour as opposed to going like 3.5 miles per hour. But, you know, it, it basically, when you're in a big group ride like that, I think like whether you have like the style bike that you have, the Orbea Rise, the Levo SL style bike, or whether you have the style bike that I have, it's really kind of a wash because everyone's pretty, pretty much pedaling all at the same speed. Mm. You know what I mean? I think where, where the difference really matters is like when I ride by myself a lot, I mean, yeah, like I've got the bike and boost, like I'm blasting up the mountain at 14 miles per hour. Like I'm trying to just get my laps in and go home, you know? Um, but that's like, yeah, like I think in a group situation, it, it really doesn't, doesn't matter as much, you know? Mm. So I, I would, I would definitely go with, with the bike that suits your needs the most, you know, whether it's like something super lightweight with like what you have or monster truck style like what i have <laughs> I, mean, I mean my bike still feels monster trucky just because it's got the same wheels as yours on it like the big yeah. 29 maxis wheels yeah. versus the da vinci that i was riding before i had the little uh 27 inch schwalb uh-huh. uh like sort of fatter tires like uh the ibis yeah. mojos have on them and stuff like that yeah um and i liked i kind of like the 27 inch tires it was like they feel more agile and like you can sort of dodge around in like rock gardens a little better and stuff like that but um, yeah, the monster truck style, big Maxxis tires are also pretty yeah. fun. It's like no, no, no need to like manual lift onto logs and shit. You just hit them and <laughs> point and shoot, man, point and shoot. Don't even think about it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, sick, man. It was, um, awesome to have you on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time yeah, to brother. do this conversation and yeah, we should definitely ride at some point if you're up here with your mountain bike or um, yeah, I'm yeah, in yeah. San Francisco or if, if I come down to LA with mine, I'll hit you up for sure. Please do, man. Please do. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, man. Thanks very much for coming on. Dude, thank you so much for having me, man. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes, and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. Hello.